Lord, we do praise you tonight. You are great. In fact, you're so great, you're even willing to make us great. You're willing to, like you say to Abraham, make his name great. God, you're so great, even associating with you can make us great, Lord. We're so grateful. So grateful for the name that you bear, the name above every name, the name that you gave to your son, Jesus. That it is Yahweh who saves. It is you, the God of salvation, who has made a way for us. God, would you help me as I begin to communicate your saving intention tonight as you call out Abraham to a better life, to new things, to things he had not yet seen, things that were great, things that were beyond what he could imagine in his lifetime that you brought to pass. Pray you would help us all understand the gravity of that, of your work in this moment as we read these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're still in Genesis. We're just transitioning now to the, the patriarchs, right? We, we've been in kind of this prehistory for the last, um, well, really since we started in February. We've been in, in these, these prehistory narratives, and now we're finally turning to kind of um, it sounds weird to say because it's Abraham's day, but modern history, right? That's this time in which we can go back and have a historical record. We can find some of these, you know, ages and times and, and uh, you know, the cities of that era. So it's pretty amazing that we're now in this kind of, this historical period that we can actually look back, uh, see into. But I realized... Um, Last week, uh, talking to, to Tyler and talking to my, my wife, talking to Monique, um, that I, I probably didn't connect what I had wanted to last week as well as I had hoped. But what, the reason we went through so much content last week, and it kind of seemed to go on, but the connection I'm trying to make for you is that the story of Noah leads us between the flood, which is the, the story of prehistory, to kind of this modern day, right? As what we're about to read, I'm just going to give you this list of names to summarize this next part of the genealogy. But what you see happening is that these kind of prehistory people who were living, what? It says 900, 800, 700 years. As we go down this list, uh, Shem is really the last person who's standing in that prehistory position. And the stories of Noah that are leading, right? The story of of him getting drunk, the story of Canaan's curse, the story of the table of nations, all of that is telling us how we got to the modern world, right? It's, It's telling us, how did these people spread out over the face of the earth? What was it, right? The Tower of Babel. Why, what's the importance of that story? It's telling us how we ended up in clans and tribes and nations with different languages. It's establishing a framework for humanity that we still understand today, right? It's going from these things that seem so almost mythical to us, right? The, the Garden of Eden, the Flood, to, to what we consider you know, the modern age, what we can relate to, stories that we can understand from our own experiences in many ways, right? So this, this next part of the genealogy, this, this sermon tonight is called Land, Seed, and Blessing. If you know, the series title has been A Land, a Seed, a Blessing. And this is really the crux of the matter. 
When we get to the beginning of Genesis 12, we will hit the crux of the themes of Genesis, the, the major portion of it, and that's tonight, when we get to 12, 1 through 9. But first we need to wrap up 11, which has more genealogical background of who these people are. So you'll see tonight, I said land, seed, and blessing. That's the series title. And tonight's very key. It's very, uh, it's very central to everything we'll talk about. Everything we have talked about from 1 to 11 in Genesis, and everything we will talk about for the rest of the book. So, we have uh, at the end of where we stopped, we're starting in 11.10, if you have your Bibles, or if you're looking up here. Uh, we're starting in, in chapter 11, verse 10. And this gives another piece of genealogy. It starts at Shem. Now, if you remember Shem, right? He's one of the three sons of Noah. You have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so it says, here's Shem, and Shem has a son, and his name's Arpachshad, right? And Arpachshad has a son, and his name's Shelah. And Shelah has a son, his name's Eber. Eber has a son, and his name is Peleg. And interestingly, in the earlier generation, in the earlier genealogy, it says that he's named Peleg, which means to divide, because in his day the earth was divided. What that is referring to most likely is Tower of Babel language, right? the dividing of the peoples, the separating of them. The earth was spread, right? So it's possible there's the, the Tower of Babel in his day, okay? He has a son, names him Ru. Ru has a son named Sarug. Sarug has a son named Nahor. Nahor has a son named Terah. And Terah has three sons named Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, three sons. What's interesting is these turning, uh, these turning epochs of time all relate to men with three sons, right? So this should tell us something because we've seen men with three sons before, right? Where did we see it? We first saw it with Adam. He has Cain, Abel, and Seth. Now Abel's murdered, and Seth is the replacement child is how they talk about him, right? He's named Seth because he was placed in place of Abel. But they have three sons. And then there's a new era when what happens? Noah. And Noah has three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so when we get to Terah and we see, oh, he has three sons. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We should be thinking something big is about to happen. Something big happened with Adam. Something big happened with Noah. And now something big is happening with Terah. Now, we know Abram really well. We don't know Terah. Right? We really don't hear anything about him after this, after this section. What's interesting, though, is every heading of the sections uh, in Genesis is named for the father and talks about the sons. Right? If you've been following along, these are the records of, are the different sections of the, books, uh, of the book of Genesis. So you've had, these are the records of the heavens and earth at the beginning. Right? And then you had, these are the records of Adam. These are the records of Seth. You had, these are the records of Noah. And now you have, these are the records of the generations of Terah, of the descendants of Terah, his family record. But every time you have this family record, consistently, it's about his sons. It's about this person's sons. So this will be about Abram. It will be about in a, in a large part, it'll also be about Lot, right? This character Lot we're going to be introduced to. 
But the same thing happens later on in Genesis when it says these are the records of Abraham. These are the records of Abraham. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'm mistaken. When these are the records of uh, Isaac, excuse me, when these are the records of Isaac, the stories are all about Jacob. And when you have these are the records of Jacob, what happens? The Joseph story starts. Right? So it's really the idea of this person being the patriarchal figure. Right? He's the one who's head of the family at the time of these stories. And so Terah, right here, is the head of the family when we get these stories about Abram. He's the patriarchal head. So here's what it says in, in verse 27. These are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Now Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcha, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcha and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, we have just been introduced to every character that is going to take up the majority of the time from now till Genesis 25, right? That is what's going on here. We're being introduced to the major players of what's going to happen. And the major players, they're Abram. They are Lot. They are Sarai, right? These characters that are going to come up. And we've been introduced to the other people that are going to come up later. Who's Milcha? Well, that's the grandmother of Rebekah, who ends up becoming Isaac's wife, right? There's a family relation. We're starting to see these, these people that we're going to hear stories about. Right, for the rest of the book. So, <clears throat> it's kind of heartbreaking, uh, the brevity, the, the terseness of Sarai's condition, isn't it? Sarai was barren, she had no child. Such a heartbreaking reality, but it really is central to the story that's about to be told, isn't it? Because the key thing that Abram and Sarai are promised is what? It's a son. So right now we can see there's a problem in the family. In fact, if you remember earlier, I told you the idea of Genesis is like looking down a family tree. Remember I told you there's like, it's like you're looking down a family tree and every once in a while the person talking to you is like, oh, I've got a story about this person. And you stop and you hear the story and then you keep going down the family tree. And then you hear, oh, I got one about this guy. Well, here's the problem. The family tree is stopped, isn't it? We've got a problem. We've been following a family tree, and we get to Abram. That's where we've come to. And what's the problem? The family tree ends here. Because his wife is barren. There's no children. That's a significant problem in a book that is marked out. It's structured around, what? Genealogy. That's a severe problem if someone in the line of genealogy of the line of the chosen people, the line of the elect, has no child. The line ends. So what's going to happen? That's, that's the question we're left with as we read that. What's going to happen? What is the Lord going to do something about that? So, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there, the days of Terah 
were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Okay? Terah, by the way, only dies two years, by according to this numbering, only two years before Sarai dies. Why do they deal with his death here? Because he's not a major player. He's not going to add much to the story. But if you look at it chronologically, according to the numbers here, Terah lives almost as long as Sarai. That is two years prior to her, according to the numbering. So, but why is he not integral to the story? Well, because we're about to see what happens in 12.1. Abram is going to be called out from his father's house. Okay, 12.1. This is central to all of Genesis. 12, 1, 2, and 3 is the central theme of everything in Genesis. Because the Lord's going to say to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. What is the promise contingent on? What, what is the expectation for these promises to come to be? Abram's got to go. Yep. He's got to go, right? That's the one command in this whole thing. It's all promise. The focus is on promise, but there's one command, and it's go. I named this series A Land, A Seed, A Blessing because these are the three central promises that God gives to Abram that frame the entire story, really of Genesis, but in particular of Abraham, as we know him. He promises him a land. Go from the land, your homeland, leave your country, leave your relatives, and leave your father's house, right? That's like leaving your, your, your country, leaving your community, and leaving your relatives, right? Your, your extended family. He, everything he knows, he has to leave behind, right? Except for those who are under his care. Except for the people under his care, he has to leave everything behind. But the Lord says, to the land which I will show you. Now, it doesn't sound much like a promise, but it's the beginning of understanding. This land will be yours, Abram. It will be the land of your people the land of your descendants. Go to this land and it will become yours. That's what he's implying. And we're going to see that laid out a lot more explicitly as we go on. But the Lord here is promising a land for him, a home. Right? Land is important. I don't think we, th we think of it with the same um, level of care that they would have. <laughs> It's, it seems a lot less consequential to us in the modern day where it's easy to uproot everything and go somewhere else and just start a new life. Like, land is significant to a people. And he's being promised a land. And not only that, he's going to be made a great nation. What's that referring to? He's going to have lots of kids. There will be many seeds. There will be many descendants for Abram. If he's going to be a great nation, that means he needs to be made into a great people. And if he's going to be made into a, a, a great people, then he's got to have some kids. 
He's got to have the line continue. This is a seed promise. He's going to have descendants. And lastly, he's promised a blessing. What a blessing. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. What does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 11, right? The people at the Tower of Babel. They are going to make a name for themselves. No, no. Abram is told, I, the Lord, will make a name for you. I will make your name great. See the difference? In 11, they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to make their own name great. And here the Lord promises Abram, I'm going to make your name great. I will do it for you. Right? If you are a servant of mine, if you follow after me, Abram, I will make your name great. And I will bless you. But it's not enough that he's going to be blessed. No, he's going to be so blessed that you will be a blessing. You're actually going to be a source of blessing for others. It's not enough that I'm just going to bless you. You are going to be so, so impelled by God, so, so connected with him that you are going to actually be a source of blessing for others. Right? And those who bless you, those who, who, those who are for your good, they're going to be blessed. And those who want what's bad for you, those who want to see you destroyed, they're going to be cursed. And not only that, in you, every family on the earth will be blessed. Wow. Abram not only is going to be blessed, he will be a blessing, he will be Blessing those who bless him and every family on earth will be blessed in Abram. Imagine the impact of those words on Abram. But remember, Abram has no connection to this God. None. There is no indication that Abram knew the Lord prior to this call. There's no indication that he knew him. This is the Lord seeking a people. Right? The Tower of Babel is the spreading out of the nations. And if you go further on in the Pentateuch, what does it say about the Lord? It says he chose Israel as his own portion, his own inheritance. Right? The nations were spread out and cast out, and they all took their own gods. And yet the, the one true God, the true Lord of the universe, he had an inheritance. He had a portion. He had a remnant for himself. And here's the moment he started to choose that remnant when he calls Abram. This is the Lord's portion. This is the Lord's inheritance. He chooses Abram. He chooses Abram. So he gives him the command. So the question is, what kind of man is Abram? He's a man of faith. He's a man of faith. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Lot's going to come up a lot in these next stories. And what's really clearly implied and, and a lot of people miss is that, remember, Lot's father has died. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. And so Lot is an orphan. It's really clear that Abram has, has essentially adopted him. Abram views Lot as his own son. Right? So everywhere Lot goes, he goes with Abram. He could have stayed with his grandfather, Terah, 
But instead, he goes with Abram. Abram's adopted him like his own son. And in fact, one of the key dramatic pieces that is going to come up as we read through the next chapters is, is Lot going to be Abram's heir? Is he going to be the one to receive you know, the, the, all the inheritance from Lot? Or from Abram, excuse me. Is Lot going to receive the inheritance from Abram? Right? So he, he adopts him and he takes him with, with him as he goes to this land of Canaan. And it says, Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. You're just getting started, Dad. A lot, a lot of promise left. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now what would we know the land of Canaan as today? We'd know it as one of two things. Israel or Palestine, right? That's the area, right? The, the Lord is showing him the land. Remember Genesis 10? It marked out the land of Canaan. Why? Because Israel, the author of, of Genesis, and Israel as a nation is concerned with what's happening with the nation. Where were these promises coming from? Where, what happened in their history that this land was, was declared to be theirs? Well, that starts with Abram. It was first offered to him. It was first offered to him. Now, at the time, it was called the land of Canaan. Why? Because the Canaanites were still there. They were still in the land. So, Abram, he's coming from the north. He's coming from Haran, which is in Iraq, right? Or modern-day Iraq. He's coming from the north, and he's going through the land. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. Now, the Canaanite was then in the land, Right? Abram starts walking from the north and he comes to Shechem, which is kind of considered the center of Israel, the middle part of it. And there at Shechem, the Lord appeared to Abram and said what? To your descendants, I will give this land. He promises this land will be yours. It will be your people's. So what does Abram, the man of faith, do? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the first time that the Lord is said to appear to someone. He shows up. Right? We know he walked with Adam. We know this. But, but really since Genesis 5, there's kind of been a distance, right? You don't see the Lord just showing up before people the same way. And now here it says he appeared to Abram. The Lord shows up to Abram. And so he builds an he builds an altar and he and he probably sacrifices. Now it doesn't say that, but what's the point of building an altar if you're not going to sacrifice on it, right? It's most likely that he sacrifices to the Lord. So he proceeds from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He goes to Bethel, another sacred holy site in Israel's history. And he makes an altar and he sacrifices there. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. The Negev, the dry land. It's the south of Israel. It's, it's the part where the wilderness wanderings were closest to, right? When, when they'd left Egypt. What's the point of all this movement? Abram is traversing the land that's going to be his. 
That's going to be his descendants. He starts, he comes from the north, right? He comes from Ur, or from Haran. He comes from Haran down through the land of Israel, the northern part. He goes to the center at Shechem, and he goes to the south land, which is the Negev. He is seeing the land that is going to be the land of Israel. The Lord, even if Abram doesn't know it, the narrator is telling us, by the land, by the landmarks we're seeing, that Abram is seeing the promised land. He's seeing the land that will belong to his descendants. He's getting a preview, a taste, a foretaste of the land. And so he walks through it and amongst it. Right? This is what is to come for Abram. These are the promises. Now, I'm going to give you an interpretation of the story. Let me read the beginning, and it will be different than what you expect. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now, I'm going to give you a different interpretation than you probably ever heard. This is my interpretation. I've never heard anyone say this interpretation other than me, so i just say that up front. All the commentators disagree with me. <laughs> this story that I'm about to read, you've heard about before, it's the story of this... Uh, it seems like a deception, like he's deceiving people. Say, hey, hey, say you're my sister. You're not really my sister, but say you're my sister, um, even though you're my wife. And then what happens? Some king gets it in his head, like, whoa, she really is beautiful. And then takes, him, uh, takes her into his harem. And then some, there's probably some crazy uh, possible sexuality that's going to happen. And then what? The Lord intervenes. And protects Abram. So the way this story is always told is like this. Abram, he makes up this scheme and it's totally going to backfire and he's totally sinful and it's an awful idea and the Lord in his graciousness, despite Abram's character flaw, is going to protect him. That's the way the story is told. I don't think that's right. I just don't. Okay, here's why. Now, I'll, I'll explain as we go through the story, but what's important is this. We look at things from our lens and where we are at. Remember this. This is prior to the law. The law has not been given. So things that we inherently intuit and assume, that is a bad thing. Is not necessarily the case that Abram would have understood that. Is not necessarily the case. In fact, Abram is what? He's prior to the law. He's prior to Moses. He's prior to Sinai. Now, I'm not trying to say that what Abram did is necessarily not sinful. But I would say at most it's a sin of ignorance, not a willful, awful character flaw. Oftentimes, we are, we are doing what is necessary or what we believe is necessary to protect ourselves, to protect our family. And in fact, uh, he, he was doing that in the first place, right? He left because of the famine. 
often I feel like this story is told in the sense that Abram just doesn't trust God. If he trusted God for a descendant, if he really trusted God, he would be open and willing to just be like, this is my wife. This is my wife. Uh, and trust that the Lord's going to protect him. And, you know, that's a fine interpretation, but I hope if you interpret it that way, you take it the whole way. Because then you also have to believe that Abram wasn't faithful to God because he left because of the famine, right? Because clearly God was going to provide food. If, God, if he just trusted God enough, then the famine would be okay and the Lord would provide for him, right? You have to take it the whole way. You have to take it the way where you say, listen, I can't make a decision until the Lord tells me everything is okay. And until the Lord says it's all right, then I don't do it. I don't think that's the case. There are times in which we don't recognize it because we read story back to back to back. But there are times when 40 years pass between the Lord speaking to Abram and then the next time he hears the Lord again. 40 years. Abram lives in this age in which there is no law. There is just a conscience, whatever you might have of that. And the Lord has already told us man's heart is evil. It's wicked thoughts from, from the days of his youth, right? It's just from the get-go. But I think what's going on is more significant than that. It's more significant than just the story of Abram's character flaw. There's something deep and meaningful going on here. And when we get to the end of the story, I'll explain it. So, what happens is, he comes up with a plot because he wants to protect his life, protect the, the wife of his the life of his wife. So when they came to Egypt, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Okay. So Abram's in Egypt, and now the story goes in the traditional interpretation. It's just the Lord looking out for him, right? The Lord's bringing judgment on Pharaoh because he took Sarai, but, but Pharaoh really didn't know he was doing anything wrong. Right? He didn't know he was doing anything wrong, of course, when he took Sarai, because he thought that it was Abram's sister, right? So the Pharaoh, when these plagues broke out, the Pharaoh calls Abram to him and says, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt back to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now, the Lord has looked out for him, right? In the traditional interpretation, the Lord looked out for him, protected him, even though he made this awful mistake. And what's interesting is, what is this you have done? Does that ring any bells? Yes, it's the same thing the Lord said to Eve. What have you done? It's the same thing the Lord said to Cain. What have you done? And now Pharaoh says it to Abram. What have you done? So in the traditional interpretation, just like the Lord says to, to uh, Eve, just like the Lord says to Cain, now Pharaoh is condemning Abram. 
He's condemning Abram because he did something wicked. And so we should just take Pharaoh's interpretation as correct. And that Pharaoh's the one who's moral and good. And Abram's the one in the wrong. And somehow the Lord's protected him. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Why? I think a much easier interpretation is that this. These kings think they're gods. And they say the same words as the Lord as a foreign king. To a prophet of God like Abram. That makes way more sense to me. I don't understand why we're supposed to look at Pharaoh's testimony and assume he's telling the truth. And Abram, of course, he doesn't say a word. Which commentators say that that's because it, it recognizes Abram's guilt. He doesn't say anything because he knows he's guilty. No. He's not saying anything because the main character of this story is not Abram. It's God. God's at work. This story is so random. Why is it placed here? Why is it here at the beginning? We just got these awesome promises. It looks like Abram's going to do awesome. He's a man of faith. He's a man who gets the promises and he goes when he's told to go. Later on, we're going to see he's the man who sacrifices his son when he's told to or is willing to, right? In Genesis 22. Why would this story, if it's just Abram's character flaw, why would this story show up right at the beginning of Abram's story? What's going on is deeper than that. I made up a word to describe it. It's a pre-enactment. A pre-enactment. In theology, they use the term typology. It's a type. What they're saying is it's pointing to an event that has not yet happened. That is a greater version of it. What is this story of Abram in Egypt? It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the Exodus. Abram goes into the land of Egypt and Pharaoh takes his wife from him and really... She's in bondage to him, isn't she? She's in his harem. And it requires the Lord to free her from Pharaoh's oppression. How does he do it in this story? He sends plagues on them. Does that sound familiar? He sends plagues on Egypt, and then what happens? They're sent out. They're sent out. But they're not sent out with nothing. How are they sent out? With all the stuff Pharaoh had given them. Sheep and oxen and female servants and camels and all these things. Does that ring any bells? Here's Exodus 12. The story of the Passover. Then he, this is Pharaoh, he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among the people both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. For they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. 
so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The story of Abram and Sarai in chapter 12 is the story of the Exodus. (coughs) You're getting a a pre-enactment, as I called it, of the story that looms large over everything, as I told you at the beginning of this series. The story that looms over the whole book of Genesis is the story of the Exodus, the defining of the people of Israel. When you read the story of Abram and Sarai, it's not a story about Abram's character flaw. It's a story that shows us what's going to happen in the Exodus. It's a story that is focused on the fact that this event is going to happen again and again and again. Right? You see these things. You see these patterns. Abram is walking through the story of his descendants before they were even there. He goes to Egypt. There's oppression. There's the Lord. There's the the Pharaoh who acts like a god. Says, what is this you have done? Just like the Lord has said. And the Lord sends plagues on, on Egypt. And of course, what's that do? He lets Sarai go. He lets the people go. And then he sends them out with their plunder, just like Exodus. That's the point of the story. At the beginning of Abram's story, we're setting up the tales, the themes that are going to matter for all of the rest of the Pentateuch, all five books of Moses. So at the beginning of Abram, what stories do we find? We find the promises. You're going to have land. You're going to have a seed. You're going to have descendants. You're going to be a blessing. You're going to be blessed and you're going to be a blessing. And the story of the Exodus. That's why this story is placed where it is. To remind us. If you're an original reader of this, you you went through the Exodus. You lived that moment. So when you read this, how can you hear anything else than that? How can you not hear the echoes of what you went through? No, these stories are set up at the beginning of Abram's stories to remind us of the central points of both what has come before it and what will come after it. A land, a seed, and a blessing. The three things that mattered from Genesis 1 to 11. Adam and Eve, they're going to have kids. They're going to have descendants, a seed. They have a land, the garden, it's theirs. And they're blessed. Be fruitful and multiply. And that sh- that's the story of humanity. What is God doing with Abram? He's giving Abram what he always intended for humans. It's the recapturing of what his intention was for humanity. And Abram's going to receive it. And yet God doesn't leave it and just say, I choose Abram and that's it. What does he say at the end of, of 12, 1 to 3? In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram is the vehicle through which God begins his saving intentions. The vehicle through which God begins his saving intentions. The vehicle through which we all have found salvation starts here at Abram. What God has always intended for humanity, all the way back to Genesis 1, He starts here to offer to Abram. And through Abram, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's why the New Testament picks up that theme, right? That Jesus is the true successor of Abram. The one in whom Abram has blessed all the families of the earth. Who is that? It's Jesus. This is the start of that story. So at the beginning, it tells us, hey, just as I said in Genesis 1 through 11, these three things are what I wanted for humanity. A land, a seed, a blessing. I'm going to give it to Abram. And I'm going to tell you about the exodus before it happens. I'm going to let you know the story. I'm going to let you know the story because I'm going to redeem a people. I'm going to redeem a people that will become mine. You're not going to hear about it yet, but you will. Those central points are set up at the outset of the story. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 12 really as a whole is the centerpiece of Genesis to tell us this is what all I already said and all I'm going to say is about. Every single part of Genesis from this moment on revolves around land, seed, and blessing. That's what we all hope for, right? That's what we all desire. That's what we've all been given. And, and I was thinking about you, Tyler, this week, and I thought to myself, man, Sometimes it feels like the Lord is long in coming to answer his promises, but he keeps them. Abram's not going to see the land for himself, right? He doesn't get the land for himself. And even the descendant, the seed that is promised, Isaac, it takes decades before the promise is fulfilled. But the Lord, he may delay. It may feel like forever, but the Lord does not leave his word void not leave his promises unfulfilled. The Lord will answer his word, his promises to you, to each one of us. And he did for Abram. And it blessed the whole earth. So, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your blessing. We're thankful for Abram, the man of faith. Lord, we're thankful that, that we think of the New Testament and what it has to say about Abraham a man who was faithful prior to the law, who followed after you. We, we think about that in Romans and Galatians. We think about Abram, uh, the man, like Hebrews says, who was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Mm. May we do the same. May we await the things that you have promised, content to be immigrants, to be sojourners, to be foreigners, knowing that there is a city coming a land coming that will be ours forever. Lord, we, we trust that in you, the seed that we have required, the family, the descendants, the, the community that you have offered is what we've always needed. It's true human community. And Lord, we know, we know we have been blessed. We know we have been filled with your spirit. We know we have the very presence of you, the highest of all blessings, the presence of God walking among his people. We know you've given your spirit to us, and so that blessing remains. And we know that we're called to be a blessing to others, to, to offer up what you have to give to others as well and invite them into it. Lord, help us to be a blessing to others in the same way you've blessed us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.